0: Good morning again. Um, Today is uh, one of those messages where I want to challenge us uh, to radically rethink something that many of us were taught in church growing up. Now, if you happen to be here today and you did not grow up going to church as a kid, um, maybe you started following Jesus later in life or you're new to following Jesus or new to the Bible. uh, That's great. Um, You're going to learn a whole bunch of new stuff today. Uh, But for others of us, when I said a few weeks ago, as we enter the season of Lent, that during the season we're going to be talking about uh, the issue of sin Uh, you immediately thought, well, I'll just skip church the next six weeks, right? Um, And that's partly uh, because of what you were taught about sin growing up. And so today I want to challenge what you were taught and uh, maybe give you an entirely new way to think about it. So we have a whole bunch of ground to cover, and we're just going to jump right into something that the Apostle Paul said uh, in the book of Romans. Romans is a letter that he wrote And uh, in this part of the letter, he's trying to explain why it is that we sin, um, where we get that inclination from. For example, uh, we know lying will rarely help us, right? We know uh, it'll usually get us into trouble. We know that it undermines relationships and trust with other people, and yet we still do it, right? And so where does that inclination to lie come from? And here's the answer that Paul begins to give in the book of Romans. He says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. And then Paul just keeps going on and on and on. And he goes off on this very long tangent. He doesn't actually pick back up this original thought for about two paragraphs. But we're just going to look at this one sentence today, because there's a lot here to unpack. Um, Now, let me simplify the wording just a little bit and reformat it on the screen because Paul actually makes four parallel statements. In the first two, he says this, sin entered through Adam. He says one man, but in the next sentence, he says he's talking about Adam. So that's who he's talking about. Sin entered through Adam and consequences. Now, this is the story of Adam and Eve from Genesis, right? They're the first humans. Uh, They disobey God and we're told, uh, or they're told that death will be the consequence of their disobedience. And whether the story of Adam and Eve is is literal or historical or it's uh, poetic or metaphorical or archetypal, right? Um, Paul doesn't get into any of that. He just takes the story as Genesis offers it, and he says, This is when sin entered the world and the consequences of sin. Then, in the second two lines, Paul says, Also, consequences came to all because all sinned. So the sin and the consequences that we still experience today are somehow connected to Adam's sin and the consequences he experienced, but Paul is not clear about what the precise connection is. So, a few hundred years later, a guy named Pelagius came along. Pelagius was a British monk. He, was, uh, he lived at the end of the 4th century AD. He was really smart, and he suggested that the connection between Adam and all of us is that we are following Adam's bad example. Okay, That we all have free choice, we have free will. In any given moment, we have the opportunity to choose to do something that's right or something's wrong. We're not born with any predisposition or inclination to make the wrong choice. We are all born neutral. We're like Adam and Eve in the garden. We truly have a choice, but like Adam, we keep making bad choices. And this seems to make sense of what Paul said up above, right? We experience the same consequences that Adam experienced because we keep sinning in the same way that Adam did. Well, a guy named Augustine lived at the same time. And I've told you a little bit about Augustine in the last few messages. Uh, Augustine became a Christian when he was about 30 years old. He was a very deep thinker. He was a theologian, a philosopher. He became a leader in the church at the time. And Augustine thought Pelagius was totally wrong. Because if we're just following Adam's bad example, then why do 100% of us follow this bad example fairly consistently? It doesn't seem to explain uh, the depth and the breadth of human sin. See, Augustine believed something must have happened there in the garden when Adam first sinned that somehow... Influenced and affected and and changed the entire human race from that point forward. Such that we have all inherited a sinful nature. We are born sinful. We are not born neutral. Now, there is a grammatical debate going on in this verse from Romans. um, Because Paul originally wrote in Greek, And how you interpret some words is up for debate. And this is why Greek scholars and Pauline scholars like Joey Dodson have jobs. They sit around and they they debate this stuff all day day long. And I'll give you a little sneak peek into this debate. In the fourth line, where it says, uh, where Paul wrote, because all sinned, he begins with a little Greek prepositional phrase, and it can be taken a few different ways. It can be interpreted to mean because, right? Which would suggest that the consequences we experience are because of our own sins, not Adam's sin. So that's how Pelagius understood it. However, the Greek can also mean something like result, which would be the consequences of sin came to all in the third line with the result that all people sinned. In other words, our sinning now is somehow a result of Adam's sin and his consequences that were somehow spread to all of us and that's more of Augustine's view. Or, there's a third option. There's actually a bunch of options, but here's the top three. Uh, the Greek words can even mean in whom or in him, which would then link everything back to the first verse. That it is in him, in Adam that we all sin. And this is what Augustine actually believed it meant, that humanity is represented by and in Adam, that figuratively speaking, it's like we were all there in the garden with Adam, and that Adam was acting on humanity's behalf. And if you take the story of Adam and Eve more literally, we are physical and biological descendants of Adam, so we inherit genetically a sinful nature from Adam. We are born sinful. Now, Augustine's view won out (laughs) with church leaders and with theologians. Uh, Pelagius' view just didn't seem to make uh, true sense of the human condition. It also doesn't make sense with some other things that Paul will later say about the power of sin in our lives and in our world. So, Uh, Pelagius was branded a heretic. That's what they did back then. And Augustine's view was adopted by everyone. And it became known as original sin. That we all inherit a sinful nature because of and from Adam's original sin. And this became the dominant understanding of sin in the Christian faith. And over the next 1,500 years... Augustine's idea of original sin, it grew and it expanded. And there were all sorts of things added to it and built upon it. Uh, Roman Catholic theology became obsessed with original sin. It shaped the way they began to think about uh, sex and reproduction, about baptism, about Mary, the mother of Jesus. We don't have time to get into all that. But then you get to the Protestant Reformation. And these reformers, names you've heard of, a guy named Martin Luther and and John Calvin, they also embraced Augustine's view of original sin. This was like the one thing all the Catholics and Protestants could agree on at that time. But Protestants took this idea of original sin several steps further to something they called total depravity. Total depravity means that we have inherited a sinful nature, And we are sinful even before we're born. That's what Augustine said. But it also means that we have inherited guilt and blameworthiness. Meaning every single time we sin, we demonstrate we would have made the same bad choice in the garden that Adam did. It's like we were there with Adam in the garden, and we would have disobeyed God as well, which means each of us carries The guilt and the blame, not just of our own choices, but it's almost like we carry the guilt and the blame of all of humanity. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which came out of uh, the Reformation, says it this way, Adam's guilt and corrupt nature were imputed to all of us, such that each of us are utterly indisposed, disabled, And the opposite of all good. Which ultimately means we are fundamentally depraved. We are just fundamentally bad. You do not just do bad things. You are, at your core, a bad person. Now, I grew up in um, a middle-of-the-road, evangelical, somewhat conservative church church. And I heard a lot of sermons about sin and about how sinful I was. Um, And I did plenty of things to confirm this diagnosis as a teenager. All right, there's no denying that. Uh, But I was also taught that the clearest understanding of the gospel, of the good news, was found in the book of Romans. And that there were four or five verses that I could just. Memorize. If I memorized those, those would summarize everything that I needed to know. And the very first verse was this, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Anybody else memorize that verse? This is the first thing to know about yourself, about the world, about truth, about God. You are a sinner. This is the starting point. In my 20s, uh, I began to read books by a specific author. He wrote tons of uh, bestsellers about faith and about God. He was very popular. He was speaking at all the big conferences, and, and everyone was reading him. And, and um, I, I hung on like every word he said and every book he wrote. And the two things he talked about more than anything else were how amazing God is and how horrible we all are. And here's one thing he wrote. God looked upon us when we were not beautiful, not attractive, not pleasing. He saw lostness and hopelessness and rebelliousness and dirty character and undeserving merit. No merit. See, God sees nothing good in you when he looks at you. And how'd you get this way? Here's how. When human beings... And that's all of us fell into sin. God's human creation was marred, defaced, made ugly, displeasing. We're so defaced and so debased that God finds thoroughly unpleasing. Finds us thoroughly unpleasing when it comes to a personal relationship. God is disgusted by it like he has to hold his nose when he gets around us he has to cover his eyes maybe put on a hazmat suit because we're just so dirty and depraved and disgusting to him see this understanding of original sin and total depravity it's what a lot of us learned it's the self-identity that we inherited about who we are and I want to suggest it's not really what the Bible teaches. Now, I'm not going to propose that we go back to Pelagius uh, or that Augustine was entirely wrong. Right? We are not born neutral. So Augustine was on to something when he was trying to understand what Paul said. But the Bible does not champion this metastasized view of original sin and total depravity. Let me give you just three things real quick to think about first. The Bible rarely links our sin with Adam's sin. Paul is the only one to do it, only in two places. In the passage we just read, in Romans, and in one other letter, he writes, Jesus never mentions Adam. In his entire ministry, in all the teaching that we have recorded, he doesn't once mention Adam. The Old Testament never refers To Adam's sin after the early chapters of Genesis Adam's name is mentioned one other time in a genealogy list on no occasion does anyone in all of ancient Israel ever suggest that our sins now are somehow linked to Adam's sin on no occasion does Jesus ever suggest that now I'm not discounting Paul But why would we make this a core belief of our self-identity if it's not a core teaching of Jesus or the Bible? Second, the Bible rarely talks of being born into sin. If you're looking for this kind of language, there's only one verse. It comes from the book of Psalms, and it's where David says this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. But here's the context. David had literally just gotten caught committing adultery and murdering somebody. He is wrecked by genuine guilt and shame, and rightly so. And so he is pleading with God for forgiveness. He is on his face groveling before God, as he should be, admitting how horrible he is and suggesting maybe he's always been this way. This is not a theological statement about all of humanity. This is not a universal explanation of all people. This is an emotional plea from a guy who's at rock bottom. It is not a description of our objective self-identity. One more thing. The Bible rarely suggests that we're born with a sinful nature and we just cannot help but to sin, Now again, Paul uses some of that language, and we're going to spend some time in the coming weeks trying to understand what Paul is saying about that, but no one else in the Bible does. There's no language of a sinful nature in the Old Testament. The language the Old Testament uses is the language of choice. Choose wisely. Choose well, right? And when people sin, it's because they chose poorly. It's because they chose to. It's not because they couldn't. Help it! It's not because they had this sinful nature they were born with. Jesus never uses that kind of language either. Whenever he meets people who are broken by their bad choices, he tells them to repent, to stop making those kind of choices, to stop sinning. And he believes they can actually do that. See, this language of original sin... And total depravity, it takes us into directions that the Bible rarely goes. In fact, uh, there's one passage in the Old Testament that seems to directly push against this idea of original sin. It's from Ezekiel 18. Here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to me. This is the prophet Ezekiel. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So this was a common proverb at the time, and it meant that if a parent ate some bad food, it would be the child's mouth that would hurt. It would be the child who would get sick. And the idea is that the kid is punished for their parent's bad choice. In other words, the guilt is transferred from the parent to the child, and it's the child that will pay the consequences or punishment for the guilt of the parent. And God is saying, why would you guys believe that? He goes on, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel, for everyone belongs to me. The parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. So in this example, if death is the punishment or the consequence of some kind of sin. God is saying it's the person who sins that will face that consequence. It's not anyone else. It's not their child. You don't inherit the guilt or the sin or the nature of your parents. And then, just to make it really clear, God uh, gives this long example. He says, picture, we won't read it, I'll just summarize it. He says, picture this man, and this man has done everything right in life. He's made all the right choices. He's very righteous. And then he has a son, and his son does all of these terrible things in life. He is very sinful. And then that guy has a son, and then his son does all of the right things in life. And it's pretty clear. Everyone has their own life. Everyone makes their own Choices And then God says this, you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the d- son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all of my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. And then after this, God says, but I don't want anyone to make any bad choices. I don't want anyone to die or suffer any consequences. So I'll do everything I can to help people make the right choices. But God is trying to make it as clear as possible here. We do not inherit guilt from anyone else before us. I'm not guilty because of what somebody else did. We don't inherit their sinful nature either. Just because my dad made terrible choices, does not automatically and inevitably mean that I will make terrible choices. Now, here's what we do know. And I think probably all of us know this from experience. The sins of our parents, they do affect us. They do not change our identity, but they do shape the world that we grow up in. The sins of our parents and the sins of those those around us, they do not define our being, but they do form our context. So it might be helpful to differentiate between a couple of ideas, original sin and generational sin. Original sin is the concept that Augustine came up with to try to explain what Paul was saying. Generational sin is a more holistic understanding of what the Bible teaches. Original sin says that we inherit a sinful nature or identity from our parents. And our parents got it from their parents and their parents got it from their parents and it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Generational sin says that we inherit a story, a context, a narrative, a family, right? And the story or the family or the context that we inherit, it can shape us for good and it can shape us for bad. But it does not define our inherent nature. I have a friend named Johnny Morrison. He recently wrote a book called Prodigal Gospel. And he articulates this better than anyone else. Johnny writes this, We live in the wake of our forebears for good and ill, And we contend with the consequences of their lives. Generational sin is a historical inheritance in which we, the inheritors, are bequeathed the whole and wholes of life. This kind of sin is not about guilt or being, but about the world we find ourselves in. He goes on. He says, along with the silverware comes an inheritance of habits, histories, gifts, And debts that are ours to parse. Our history does not condemn us or destine us, but it does shape us. We are products of place, time, and people. An amalgam of all that has come before us. We are not destined to repeat the sins of our fathers, but we are vulnerable to their legacy. We do not inherit the guilt of ancestors, but we do live in the world they made. See, if we could tease this out just a little bit more. Original sin says that we inherit a nature, but also a guilt. And God says through Ezekiel, that is not true. Stop believing that lie. Stop spreading that lie. But we do inherit something, right? We all know this. Augustine was right about that. We inherit a story and we inherit Wounds. And this is a really important word. It's to go beyond the ideas that we've talked about the last couple of weeks where we said sin is disobedience or sin is idolatry. Those are true. But sin is deeper. And it's bigger. And it's broader. And it's more painful than that in all of our lives. And so what I want you to remember today is simply this. Sin is wounding. It is the real harm and pain and hurt that has been done to us and that we have also done to ourselves and to others. My friend Johnny says, uh, sin as moral infraction is too weak of an understanding. Sin as breaking a law or breaking a rule is too small of a category. God doesn't care that much about sin because we broke a rule. He cares so deeply about sin because it is the real wounding and pain and hurt and trauma of the people that he made and loves. And trauma might sound like a strong word, but health professionals and therapists know. They use it so much now and they lean into it so much because they understand the ongoing effects that trauma has in our lives. they know how important it is for us to understand our wounds that we've experienced. All the little wounds along the way and particularly the big ones because they continue to shape the way we live and act. See, if our best explanation of why we sin is, well, we just have a sinful nature. It's how we were born. We can't help it. It's just what we do. That is not only to misunderstand the teaching of the Bible, it's to take sin less seriously. To understand sin as wounding is to truly understand the destructive power it has in all of our lives, even in our physical bodies. Right, The body keeps score. Now, let me wrap up. With a few implications of this, briefly. <laughs> Number one, we are not to blame for the wounds inflicted upon us. That's really important, and I feel like I need to um, like go into Robin Williams mode and Goodwill Hunting here. <laughs> it's not your fault. It really is not your fault. You are not to blame. You are not guilty. It is not your burden to carry for what has been done to you. It's just not your fault. We're not to blame for the wounds inflicted upon us. We are responsible for how we respond. We need to pursue healing, and we need to pursue wholeness, because the wounds that have been inflicted upon us and the wounds that we've inflicted upon ourselves and that we've inflicted upon others, it has broken all of us. We are broken and fragmented people. And yet we have the power and we have the agency with God's grace and with God's spirit working in our lives to pursue wholeness and healing. We can be different. We can choose different. We can live different lives and we can write different stories. So we are responsible for how we respond. Two more. You are not inherently bad. You're wounded. I'm wounded. We are all wounded for sure. And you've done some bad things. I've done some bad things. We have all inflicted wounds for sure. But you are not inherently bad that is not your fundamental identity you are not disgusting and displeasing to god you never have been and you never will be and here's the last you are unconditionally loved because you are first and foremost god's daughter You are first and foremost God's son. You were made and created in his image to reflect who he is and what he is like. And that will never change. It doesn't matter how much you've been wounded and it doesn't matter how much wounding you do. You will always be unconditionally loved. And that is the starting point for everything we believe about ourselves, about God, and about this world that we live in. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for these ancient texts we have. For people like Paul, who tried to understand what was going on in our hearts and lives. For Jesus and his teaching for Ezekiel. And the way he helped us understand, we often believe lies about ourselves and about this world and particularly about you. And so whatever lies we may have believed or have been passed on or we have inherited or have been told to us, God please penetrate through those things. Help us to see you for who you really are and to receive the love and the grace that you give to all of us. pray this in your name. Amen.